Hello everyone and welcome to the Three-Sided Coin podcast, which is a podcast on African political economy and development. My name is Tsukhofato Putu and today's topic is going to be the rise of China and the implications for sub-Saharan Africa. And I think that this conversation is important to have because I don't think that we're having enough conversations on China and Africa. I think that it's still very mysterious the way that China interacts with the African countries. And that's because they also just do not publicize um, their moves. I have looked into this for some of the work that I've done. But also there's a lot of like bias against China by the Western media, which is where a lot of us get our information on the world. Um, so that's one important reason why we should be discussing China. But also last week on the 23rd of November, the Chinese government announced that they have managed to pull all of their citizens out of extreme poverty. So the extreme poverty line of $1 a day, everyone in the country lives over this this um, poverty line. And, you know, we can never really know if this is truly valid because a lot of governments cook their statistics. But I think that what is valid um, is that China has had an economic miracle that a lot of so-called developing countries can learn from. If you don't know, in the 1960s, China was in the same economic position as lots of African countries that had just become independent. And so we have taken very different economic trajectories, uh, you know, specifically having started at the same place. So I think that it's important for us to analyze how these trajectories changed and what China did differently. Uh, it is also a compelling case because it has used strategies that are different from the ones that are suggested by the West, who suggests like a neoliberal form of development and who also suggests that we take on democracy. And we've seen that um, China has had a lot of socialist interventions and is also very authoritarian. So to facilitate this discussion today, I invited Mandira Bagwandin, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Cape Town. Um, she's also been a political risk analyst um, and is affiliated to multiple organizations, both in based in like sub-Saharan Africa and internationally. Um, Mandira's research is centered on China-Africa relations and like um, the Asia-Pacific region in general and, and the way that that region interacts with Africa. So, Mandira, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion with me. Uh, and I think just to start off, I'd like to ask what your thoughts are on the announcement that was made about uh, the poverty line and also how China has managed to, to forge this economic trajectory of theirs. Uh, thanks, Teho. Um, yeah, no, I, I, saw, I saw a few articles on that, uh, you know, China saying that um, it's lifted basically, I think, all of its citizens out, citizens out of poverty. Um, you know, that's questionable, it's debatable. 
Um, but I think nevertheless, you know, we can still have a discussion about, um, you know, China's rise and basically how it managed to really um, have some really astounding um, economic growth and uh, uh, economic development. Um, so before I answer this question, um, I think it's necessary to provide a brief history of China's economic development. Um, so the Chinese under the leadership of Mao Zedong, you know, maintained a centrally planned or command economy. A large share of the country's economic output was directed and controlled by the state, which effectively set, you know, production goals, controlled prices of products, um, allocated re and allocated uh, resources throughout most of the economy. And it was after Mao's death, you know, that things really in terms of economic development and economic growth started to, to change for China. So after Mao's death in, um, I think it was 1978, Deng, uh, Deng Xiaoping stepped in and realized that in order for China to evolve from this poor and underdeveloped nation, it needed to uh, implement significant changes. Um, so Deng introduced the the reform and opening up policy. It's quite a, if you, if you study uh, China's uh, kind of economic development, this this has to come up. It's, it's very, like it's a, it's a policy that, uh, you know, you often find in articles and textbooks that kind of uh, was basically used to, to jumpstart China's economic transformation. And in efforts to spur economic growth and development, the, the government encouraged the formation of rural enterprises and private businesses. Um, it liberalized foreign trade and investment and relaxed state control over some prices of products. Uh, it also invested in industrial production and the education of its labor force. However, it's also important to note that the government, you know, just didn't, didn't just go all, okay, we, t we kind of, taking our guiding hand away or, you know, we, they still maintained um, uh, quite a key role um, in directing this economic development. And you see this with how it continued to maintain ownership of, of key strategic companies in various sectors, which were built up to not only dominate um, their domestic industries, but also compete internationally. And I think essentially the the implementation of of the reform and opening up policy transformed China into a mixed economy, which essentially meshed capitalism with a type of command economy. And the the French economist Michel Aglietta um, aptly summarizes, for me at least, aptly uh, summarizes China's development model as the market as far as possible and the state as much as necessary. And based on my, my research, for me, uh, three factors stand out um, that played quite a significant role in China's uh, economic development. One was the, the goal-oriented and type of centralized planning where, you know, the Chinese government, um, especially, you know, the, the main, the central government really, you know, really drove this, this push for economic development. And 
they kind of got all levels of government on board, which was not, which was more like your municipal, local types of levels um, of government. And they, you know, they set out plans and they set out targets, which, which China had to drive um, with the, which, which the state uh, drove, uh, you know, people towards meeting and like, just, there was just this like energy of like, you know, we've got to, we've got to push, we've got to, we've got to meet these targets and goals. Um, the second was, uh, the second factor is comparative advantage. My research when I've been speaking to various uh, professors and uh, kind of uh, experts in China, uh, they, they often mention that China looked towards its comparative advantage. You know, it wasn't very rich in natural resources like, like African countries are. So um, it's, it's comparative advantage was its uh, massive population. And they used this massive population to not only attract market investment, but they also kind of corralled the population and utilized it and built it up and to build up uh, industry um, so that China can become this massive um, exporting machine. And I think the last one, um, especially when you look at this kind of um, uh, economic development is uh, technological uh, transfer. Um, foreign companies that wanted to enter the Chinese market had to impart some of their skills and technology to uh, Chinese companies that they partnered with. They couldn't just come in into the country and just set up business. They had to somehow partner with or have a Chinese partner, um, a Chinese partner company. And this would allow the, the Chinese to study their technology and modify it if necessary for the Chinese market. And it's what we call the signification of, of technology. And you especially see this in China's rail sector and uh, the development of, of high-speed high-speed uh, high railways and um, yeah I think it's I think if you especially if you want to understand China's economic development and um, just that China's economic miracle you look you should look to to how China's China um, developed its high-speed railways and its rail sector yeah Cool. Very interesting. Uh, thanks for that. And um, I really thought that the the quote markets as much as possible, state as much as needed was really interesting. But I would also kind of think that that's the neoliberal thoughts as well. Do you think that they push a little bit further is one question, like than the average like capitalist country? Um, but I think that can just be a thought. You can answer it when, like, in any other question that I ask. Um, but I wanted to ask, like, in what way, um, what lessons can sub-Saharan Africa learn from the Chinese economic development, like, miracle? You spoke of, like, comparative advantage. They had a lot of people. And what we know is that the African continent now also has... Um, a very large young population and will have the biggest mm. population of, I think, young people in a few years. Um, mm. So what can countries do? Also knowing that we have natural resources. Um, yes. So what do you think, uh, just from your own thoughts um, and your own research? 
Yeah, so this this is a very like you know very good question, and we could spend probably hours talking about it. Um, but I think I think you know before answering this question, I need to put a bit of a caveat in place. And you know when you read many articles and um, you know many kind of uh, when you listen to commentary and stuff, um, China's development development models often viewed as a as a kind of a panacea for uh, Africa's development. And I think we, we must be careful not to assume a type of one size fits all approach. Um, with that said though, I think that there are aspects of China's development strategy that can be useful for Africa. In, in my opinion, I think that uh, two factors or two kind of um, yeah, two, I'd stick with the word two factors are, are especially, especially useful. Uh, the first one is uh, structural economic transformation is imperative. Um, you know, we, I think we've, it's been hammered into us, not just as, you know, at, uh, at university, but generally, you know, when you look at kind of these um, political economy shows or kind of documentaries on Africa's um, kind of economics and things. Um, often analysts and scholars note that, you know, Africa needs to evolve away from simply just being a supply of raw commodities. And China's economic development presents us with one option of reallocating resources from low pro productivity activities into modern high productivity sectors, such as manufacturing. But other cases, uh, such as India, provide us with another option of building on comparative advantage patterns to sustain growth. And, you know, India's kind of case and experience suggests that shifting into high productivity services and skipping manufacturing can be another sustainable growth path. I think if we, if we talk about drawing on comparative comparative advantage you know natural resources are many african states bread and butter so we need to look at how can we harness natural resources to boost economic development i think we have to not just um not just supply the raw commodity but transform the commodity into a value-added product and for that you need investment and infrastructure there, there needs to be investment in improving infrastructure and trade network, building up human capital, improving financial services, reducing barriers of entry for new products, and a substantial amount of investment in research and design. You can't, the, the infrastructure needs to be in place and the investment, you need to have the investment. We can't expect to build, you know, manufacturing capacity or industrial capacity without basic quality infrastructure and you need to have investment to build these kind of sectors to create jobs because yes you're right Sekho, we are our population is growing and we need to use that as an to to kind of utilize to utilize it and really make make it work for us like the chinese did with their population but they realized they couldn't just you know get their population working without having the infrastructure in place for people for jobs so um, structural economic transformation is really important and 
it's, it's definitely evident um, when you look at China's, the evolution of, you know, China's um, economic, economic growth. The second one, I think, second factor, I think, which is very important is planning and uh, goal setting. Um, when we look at China's remarkable growth, you know, it didn't, it did not just happen overnight. It, it was a deliberately planned endeavor that required consistent efforts to achieve goals they were, that were set out by the central government over the years. In China, you know, when, when, one, ref, when one reform to improve product, productivity was achieved, another one would be introduced. It was like this endless cycle of just working towards uh, enhancing productivity, um, of trying to achieve sustainable development. Um, and I think, you know, you see that in over the last few decades, uh, China's sole focus has been on maintaining productivity through a range of policy choices with the ultimate aim of achieving sustained economic growth. And what we, what, what Africa can take away from China's experience is that, you know, if, if we are to achieve economic growth with, with increased productivity, um, employment and poverty reduction, we need to have a plan built on sound economic principles and one that speaks to the African context and is developed by Africans. We can't just borrow development plans from other regions without Africanizing them because it simply, it, it might give us a few like, results, but it, in my opinion, it largely won't work. Um, and importantly, African leaders need to be practical and pragmatic in developing solutions to improve economic development. There's no point at least I think, you know, there's no point in having grandiose plans if you don't have the tools, resources and systems in place to see it through. Then you're just setting up projects to, to fail. Um, in, in my opinion, I think that African countries should not seek to replicate the Chinese experience. Instead, they must create their own growth path that leads to self-reliance. And I honestly think that the day we start here, about the African model of development is the day that will kind of is the day that you'll kind of know that we're on the right path to to sustainable economic development. Thanks, Jeho. Really interesting. I wrote down quite a few notes there. Um, yeah, I would have never thought of of it that way specifically because I think that um, like our analysis is kind of trapped in this uh, neoliberal. Yes. like you know framework where you can never really think of strategies outside of it and that's a question i actually wanted to ask um and i think it leads on to some of the questions i sent you as well can african countries do their own like african development as you speak of their own um, development strategies considering you have the west um working through like the imf and the world bank um essentially like forcing countries to take on neoliberal strategies yeah. specifically and forcing the state out. So we can't have a strong central planning um, the way that China's had. So yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Like, uh, how do you think African countries should navigate um, the current rules of the international political economy? Mm. Um, you know, China, they actually were they didn't 
they also um, kind of had loans from Japan. There needs to be, I think, also a very strong hand um, guiding uh, development in these in African countries. I'm not saying, you know, I don't want like a kind of a dictatorial situation or whatever, but you need to have, and what I, at least from studying China, what I've noticed is that, you know, they, they kind of couldn't care if they were the only communist country left or whatever. They, they couldn't care about what the, just that they had this vision, they had this, the leaders knew exactly what they needed to do. They worked towards, yes, they made mistakes. They weren't perfect. There was corruption. Um, you know, we have corruption as well, but it's just like there's this, there was this like, I don't know how to say it, but there was like this kind of energy and this, the state was this like silent driving force, just, you know, blocking out all the noise about how you should govern or how your economy should be and just had this plan. And the aim was to, to just stick to the plan and execute it. And um, I think African countries need to um, kind of have that same mindset and irrespective of regime change. So if one president comes to power and they have this plan, another president comes in, you know, yes, tweak it a bit or change it a bit, but there needs to be this set that no matter what, this mindset that, you know, economic development is, is the goal, it's just especially sustainable economic development, given the kind of times that we live in now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, interesting. And I think great answer. It was quite a big question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> trust, trust, trust you to ask me this question. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you I think you answered it well. Um yeah, I, I like that answer that we should just make a decision, set a vision, and then move forward with it. Um yeah, it's gonna be tough, but I think every country that really wants to break out and and actually change its own direction should be doing it. Uh, so yeah, the next question is, what opportunities are there for sub-Saharan African countries in this shifting IPE landscape? Thanks, Seho. Yeah, this, this is quite a, I had to think, I just I had to, I to think, uh, I had to think carefully about this, this question. Um, so, for me, when I look at it right now, like during the Cold War, um, you know, Africa was kind of a proxy battlefield. And I think, again, Africa is becoming a, or is already a proxy battlefield. But this time it's for this type of tug of war between China and the West and specifically the U.S. So the U.S. has sought, you know, uh, to re-energize its focus on Africa amidst um, growing influence, amidst China's growing influence in the region. Um, so with the development of uh, like the US's uh, International Development Finance Corporation, uh, I think it was formed recently, well, last year in December, 2019, uh, Washington seeks to you know, bolster its position vis-a-vis China with um, DFC programs aimed at improving the continent's connectivity infrastructure women advancement and uh, health and things like health and sanitation. On the other hand, China under the BRI, the, if you don't know what that is, you know, um, China's uh, 
Belt and Road Initiative has been uh, has been further promoting uh, infrastructure development on the continent and in the form of mega infrastructure projects, you know, like basically modernizing harbors and building extensive railways and airports and um, ICT infrastructure, as well as furthering uh, cooperation in various fields, including security and military, uh, agriculture, manufacturing and um, education. So partnering with China is usually easier uh, because of its non-interference policy. But we've seen in the past that, you know, partnering with Chinese companies may not always be in the best interest of African states, especially from a socioeconomic and environmental aspect. Um, so currently, I think Africa is in a, is in a unique position. Um, in, that, in that it has a chance in some way to play one off against the other, to either play, you know, China or the US off against each other um, and kind of shop around for the best development finance deals. But, you know, as I kind of said previously, African leaders need to ensure that the projects that they're seeking development finance for, whether it's financed by China or the US, have to be priority projects that are in line with the country's development goals and will serve the sustainable development interests of the country. Essentially, what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, like regardless if, you, if you're dealing with the US or China, African agency needs to be asserted. You know, we can't approach these countries now with a kind of take what we can get attitude. We have to be more calculated, pragmatic and rational in our engagements. And we need to, we need to ensure that whatever finance deal, you know, we obtain is sustainable and impactful. It's it's really, it's not up to China or the U.S. or institutions to come and check have African countries done their homework. Is this is this railway that's going to be built? Is it going to really? Is it going to put them into further debt? Debt? Is it? Is it? Can we not like? Could we? Can we not just um, kind of? rehabilitate another railway line that will have the same impact. You know, you have, I feel, especially because I've, I've, my research has been on looking at China's uh, railway developments in East Africa, and I've, I've kind of come uh, almost to the conclusion, I'm not sure if I'm 100% at the conclusion that, you know, a lot of the projects, these kind of mega infrastructure projects are really, you know, it's without a doubt really needed, but, you know, has the due diligence been thoroughly done is where the, there's a lot of doubt. Um, and we, I think, you know, it's not, I really don't think it's up to China or the US or any other institution to do that. Um, African countries really need to, you know, look and like sit, really sit down and be like, is this really the best interests of this country and how are we going to make it work? You know, there's no point in building a railway if you don't have all the supportive infrastructure um, that can actually ensure that the railway serves serves a, a meaningful purpose. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, also, again, some really interesting points in that answer. Um, and I think just to pick out something that I should have asked earlier, you mentioned um, 
the USA and China and like this, like, mm. yeah, the concentration of power essentially between the two. Um, in what way does the emergence of China shift the power concentration in the international political economy? Because you usually, you had the, the US as the hegemonic power, right? And now we're speaking about China and the US. Um, so yeah, like, what does this mean? Will we have a more multipolar system? Um, and then just lastly, the last question I sent you was, um, how do these like new Chinese and Africa relations compare to the the relations between like the Western hegemon mm. and like Africa? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so if, if we look at, you know, how does the rise of China shift the power concentration in the international political political economy. Um, I definitely agree with you that, you know, it kind of signals that the world's definitely become more multipolar or could say, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say more multipolar. And, you know, in the sense now, you know, in terms of looking at the shift of power, you know, China has risen to become a significant economic powerhouse. There's no denying that it plays Play, it plays a major role as a development partner for many developing regions, you know, from, from Asia to Africa to Latin America. Oh, well, yeah, Latin America, South America. Um, and this has had, or this has had, this has led, you know, many countries to acknowledge China's economic strength, its economic might along traditional Western powers and institutions. You know, a lot of articles now frame it as, you know, China challenging the West. Um, I don't think I don't think it's challenging the West, but it's showing West, the West, especially the U.S., that hey, you're not the only, you're not the only like big shot in the, in in this in the international arena. Um, and China's initiatives, you know, you see it with initiatives such as uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and the uh, the development of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that uh, China. China is, uh, is basically spearheaded the, the, the development of this bank. And, uh, you know, such, such activities and developments uh, speak to China positioning itself more assertively, you know, instead of keeping a low profile, a uh, famous quote, um, you know, that uh, was, was uh, said by Deng Xiaoping keeping something like keeping a low profile and biding your time. And now with many Western powers that have, you know, joined on, joined up, I'm sorry, joined up to sign, uh, joined up to the AIIB um, and also signaled a preference to be part of the BRI. It shows us that China's playing an instrumental role in kind of chipping away at the West's influence, especially the US's influence and uh, shifting power, especially economic power, from, from the West to the East. Um, and in doing so, you know, creating, as you mentioned, this kind of multipolar order, you know, where, where now you kind of, it's not just simply this unipolar hegemon, the United States, you have emerging powers like, um, you know, China, India, um, that are really, uh, really showing that, you know, the, they also have a role in in uh, the international system. 
yeah. Oh, uh, before I forget, so you wanted, oh yes, the, the last question. So how can, it was how can we understand Sino-African relations um, and I think how do they differ from uh, Africa's relations with Western, Western countries or you mentioned the Western hegemonic bloc. Um, yeah, this is also quite a, quite a expansive question. So I'm going to try my best to, to keep it as concise as possible. Uh, traditionally, uh, China's interactions with the continent, you know, has been categorized, I'd say, into two kind of uh, three, three or so uh, categories. And I think uh, China scholars such as Ian Taylor, I think, point this out. Uh, the one is the development partner, uh, neo-colonialist or neo-imperialist actor, and the other, in some cases, as a competitor. But, you know, compartmentalizing China-Africa relations as such is, I would say, as, as do many other, you know, China-Africa kind of specialists say that it's quite oversimplistic and kind of implies that the relationship is static. You know, the relationship has evolved over many years and um, we need to keep, we need to keep in mind that Africa is a continent with more than 50 countries and that you, know, you can't really paint uh, China's relationship with, with each respective uh, African country within the same brushstroke. You know, you can't use the same brushstroke across all uh, African countries and kind of make a, a template of China-Africa uh, relations. But, you know, it's important to, to point out that I think in the last decade, um, this, the narrative that Africa is simply a resource supply for China has evolved. You know, while I think that while resources will be the bedrock of relations or the mainstay of the relations, um, the China-Africa relationship, in my opinion, has, has become more strategic in nature, especially as China seeks new outlets for its industrial overcapacity and new markets to export its, 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 uh, its manufacturing capacity. Africa, um, you know, with its, with its land, vast amounts of land um, and uh, growing population provides a, a very attractive destination for China. Um, and, but if we, if we just generally, generally speaking, you know, if we look at what's, what's the difference between China-Africa relations and Africa's relations with the Western hegemonic bloc, um, I think China in adhering to its, its policy of non-interference, um, you know, seeks to frame itself as a big brother to Africa, you know, helping Africa develop and it generally approaches African countries as equal partners. Whilst um, the West, on the other hand, uh, often takes a paternalistic, I would say, yeah, paternalistic or lecturing disposition in interactions with African states, you know, often prescribing how African states should govern or how they can improve their governance and economies and how 
it just kind of just this, you get this kind of like uh, badgering almost kind of hammering kind of uh, disposition about how how you should do things um, and I think given Africa's colonial history the western approach is often considered to be demeaning and belittling I would say and you know this this the, the west's approach kind of uh, plays into China's favor um, you know many uh, Chinese kind of speeches or in Africa or visits to Africa or uh, speeches at summits or things like FOCAC and stuff, you know, the Chinese do not hesitate to kind of um, emphasize their, their abhorrence against colonialism and hegemony. I think this, this you know, this is welcomed by African leaders and um, uh, they kind of appreciate, you know, that in a way China is sensitive to the history and, uh, you know, uh, would not want to to approach them in a way that uh, the West does. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tejo. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, uh, thanks for that, and thanks for being so thorough in your in your answering of the questions. Um, yeah, I think that so much of China is still like mysterious. And I think that might be because the West kind of wants it that way, um, just mm. like part of the agenda. And I know that China has its own agenda to like, you know, yeah. look really friendly, but they might also have their own yeah. shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, thanks for that. I think that like having these discussions is really important, especially because like China's becoming very very important in like African development and discussions on it but yeah. yeah I wanted to ask if you have anything else to say about this topic and maybe something that I wouldn't have thought to ask or just anything from um, your research that you think is really interesting I think from from my research like for me the the biggest thing or the main thing that stands out is kind of African agency and African officials and leaders really thinking about how best to leverage China for the development. Like you said, I am not this, I don't believe in this liberal kumbaya, we're all here to help everybody. I really think that countries, especially when you look at international relations and the international system, are always acting in their best interest. And whether it's the US, whether it's China, whether it's India, whether it's Russia, when, when, when they um, dealing with Africa, it's not out of you know pure, pure like a pure beneficiary or like beneficial type of helping kind of uh, angle. You know they also have their own agenda about whether it be improving soft power, whether it be you know, trying to help their own economies. Um, and African countries need to do the same. And I think, you know, Africa, if you look at Africa collectively is known in, especially in multilateral institutions as a collective body has quite a lot of sway. And I think China has its Africa policy. And I think African countries, or at least at the continental level, or maybe at like a regional block level, should definitely 
look at how they can have a unified voice or kind of a, a strategy or policy of how to deal with China or approach China. And I think once you have that in place, it will give us kind of, it gives African states a bit more of a backing, a bit more of a backbone uh, when, when dealing with China. And I think the, the ultimate thing is just to ensure that at, at, at the African governing level, at the African, and African officials have to ensure that whatever financial development finance help from China or the US or whatever has to translate into impactful and meaningful projects is the only way that you're going to actually get see that loans can work and um, otherwise it's just going to be this continuous cycle of you know African countries just looking for development finance and the development finance not translating into real tangible results and it, it I just think that we need to just change this this kind of pattern yeah awesome thanks so much uh yeah very interesting work that you're doing and all of the best with finishing up <laughs> thanks i don't know yeah. like if i if i publish this this week then it'll probably still be mandira but if i wait a few weeks could be dr mandira <laughs> no 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 <laughs> you have to wait maybe a few months okay. still need to, it's fine go ahead and publish it i still need to uh it needs to get examined if you wait it'll only be probably the middle of next year so, okay okay so yeah Thanks awesome. But thank yeah. you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And good to hear of the work that you're doing. Yeah.